0: Chapter five of A Silent Witness by R Austin Freeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter five. The Lethal Chamber A young and newly qualified doctor emerging for the first time into private practice, is apt to be somewhat surprised and disconcerted by the new conditions. Accustomed to the exclusively professional and scientific atmosphere of the hospital, the sudden appearance of the personal element as the predominant factor rather takes him aback. He finds himself in a new and unexpected position. No longer a mere impersonal official, a portion of a great machine, he is the paid servant of his patients, who are not always above letting him feel the conditions of his service. The hospital patient, drilled into a certain respectful submissiveness by the discipline of the wards, has given place to an employer, usually critical sometimes truculent, and occasionally addicted to a disagreeable frankness of speech. The locum tenens, moreover, is peculiarly susceptible to these conditions, especially if, as in my case, his appearance is youthful. Patients resent the substitution of a stranger for the familiar medical attendant, and are at no great pains to disguise the fact. The old woman with the liver, to adopt Batson's pellucid phrase, hinted that I was rather young, adding encouragingly that i should get the better of that in time while the more morose typhoid bluntly informed me that he hadn't bargained for being attended by a medical student taken as a whole i found private practice disappointing and soon began to wish myself back in the wards and to sigh for my quiet solitary rambles on Hampstead Heath. still there were rifts in the cloud some of the patients appreciated the interest that i took in their cases evidently contrasting it with the rather casual attitude of my principal, and some were positively friendly, but, in general, my reception was such as to make me slightly apprehensive whenever a new patient appeared. On the fourth evening after Batson's departure, Mrs. Semway was announced, and I prepared myself for the customary snub. But I was mistaken. Nothing could be more gracious than her manner towards me, though the object of her visit occasioned me some embarrassment, "'I have called Dr. Jardine,' she said, "'to ask you if you could let me have the account for poor Mr. Maddock. "'My husband is the executor, you know, "'and as we shall be going back to Paris quite shortly, "'he wants to get everything settled up.' "'I was in rather a quandary. "'Of the financial side of practice I was absolutely ignorant and I thought it best to say so. "'But,' I added, "'Dr. Batson will be back on Friday evening, "'if you can wait so long.' "'Oh, that will do quite well,' she replied, but don't forget to tell him that we want the account at once. I promised not to forget, and then remarked that she would no doubt be glad to be back in Paris. No, she answered, I shall be rather sorry. Of course, Camden Town is not a very attractive neighborhood, but it is close to the heart of London, and then there are some delightful places near, and quite accessible. There is Highgate, for instance. Yes, but it's getting very much built over, isn't it? unfortunately it is but yet there are some very pleasant places left the old village is still charming so quaint and old world and then there's hampstead what could be more delightful than the heath but perhaps you don't know hampstead oh yes i do said i my rooms are at gospel oak quite near the heath and i think i know every nook and corner of the neighbourhood i'm pining for a stroll on the heath at this very moment i dare say you are she said sympathetically This is a depressing neighborhood if you can't get away from it. We found it very dismal, at first, after Paris. "'Do you live in Paris?' I asked. "'Not permanently,' she replied. "'But we spent a good deal of time there. My husband is a dealer in works of art, so he has to travel about a good deal. That is how we came to know Mr. Maddock.' "'He was a dealer too, wasn't he?' I inquired. "'Yes, in a way. But he had means of his own.' and his dealing was a mere excuse for collecting things that he was not going to keep. He had a passion for buying, and then he used to sell the things in order to buy more. But I am afraid I am detaining you with my chatter.' "'No, not at all,' I said eagerly, only too glad to have an intelligent, educated person to talk to. "'You are the last caller, and I hope I have finished my day's work.' Accordingly she stayed quite a long time, chatting on a variety of subjects, and finally on that of cremation. ''I dare say,'' she said, ''it is more sanitary and wholesome than burial, but there is something rather dreadful about it. Perhaps it is because we are not accustomed to the idea.'' ''Did you go to the funeral?'' I asked. ''Yes. Mr. Maddock had no friends in England but my husband and me, so we both went. It was very solemn and awesome. The coffin was laid on the catafalque while a short service was read, and then two metal doors opened, and it was passed through out of our sight.'' We waited some time, and presently they brought us a little terracotta urn, with just a handful or two of white ash in it. That was all that was left of our poor friend, Septimus Maddock. Don't you think it is rather dreadful? Death is always rather dreadful, I answered, but when we look at the ashes of a dead person we realize the total destruction of the body, whereas the grave keeps its secrets. If we could look down through the earth and see the changes that are taking place, "'we should probably find the slow decay more shocking than the swift consumption by fire. "'Fortunately we cannot, but we know that the final result is the same in both.' Mrs. Samway shuddered slightly and drew her wraps more closely about her. "'Yes,' she said with a faint sigh, "'the same end awaits us all, but it is better not to think about it.' We were both silent for a while. I sat with my gaze bent rather absently on the case-book before me, turning over her last somewhat gloomy utterance until chancing to look up, I found her pale, penetrating eyes fixed on me with the same strange intentness that I had noticed when she had looked at me as I sat by the body of Maddock as she met my glance, she looked down quickly but without confusion and with a return to her habitual reposefulness, half unconsciously, I returned her scrutiny; she was a remarkable-looking woman. A beautiful woman, too, but of a type that is, in our time and country, rare, an ancient or barbaric type in which womanly beauty and grace are joined to manifest physical strength. I felt that some unusual racial mixture spoke in her inconsistent colouring, her clear pink skin, her pale eyes and the jet-black hair that rippled down either side of her low forehead in little crimpy waves, as regular and formal as the archaic curls of early Greek sculpture predominant over all other qualities was that of strength. Full and plump, soft and almost ultra-feminine, lissom and flexible in every pose and movement, yet, to me, the chief impression that her appearance suggested was strength. Sheer, muscular strength. Not the rigid bulldog strength of a strong man, but the soft and supple strength of a leopard. I looked at her as she sat almost limply in her chair, with her head on one side, her hands resting in her lap and a beautiful, soft, womanly droop of the shoulders. And I felt that she could have started up in an instant, active, strong, formidable, like a roused panther. I was going on, I think, to make comparisons between her and that other woman who was wont to trip so daintily down Millfield Lane, when she raised her eyes slowly to mine, and suddenly she blushed scarlet. "'Am I a very remarkable-looking person, Dr. Jardine?' she asked quietly, as if answering my thoughts. The rebuke was well merited. For an instant a paltry compliment fluttered on my lips, but I swallowed it down. She wasn't that kind of woman. "'I'm afraid I've been staring you out of countenance, Mrs. Samway,' I said apologetically. "'Hardly that,' she replied with a smile. "'But you certainly were looking at me very attentively.' "'Well,' I said, recovering myself. "'After all, a cat may look at a king, you know.' She laughed softly, a very pretty musical laugh, and rose, still blushing warmly. And, she retorted, by the same reasoning, you think a king may look at a cat. Very well, Dr. Jardine. Good night. She held out her hand, a beautifully shaped hand, though rather large, but, as I've said, she was not a small woman, and as it clasped mine, though the pressure was quite gentle, it conveyed, like her appearance, an impression of abundant physical strength. I accompanied her to the door and watched her as she walked up the dingy street with an easy, erect, undulating gait, even as might have walked those women who are portrayed for the wonder of all time on the ivory-toned marble of the Parthenon frieze. I followed with my eyes the dignified, graceful figure until it vanished round the corner, and then went back to the consulting room, dimly wondering why a woman of such manifest beauty and charm should offer little attraction to me. Batson's practice, among its other drawbacks, suffered from a deadly lack of professional interest. Whether this was its normal condition, or whether his patients had got wind of me and called in other and more experienced practitioners, I know not. But certainly, after the stirring work of the hospital, the cases that I had to deal with seemed very small beer. Hence the prospect of a genuine surgical case came as a grateful surprise, and I hailed it with enthusiasm. It was on the day before Batson's expected return that I received the summons, which was delivered to me in a dirty envelope as I sat by the bedside of the last patient on my list. "'Is the messenger waiting?' I asked, tearing open the envelope. "'No, doctor. He just handed in the note and went off. He seemed to be in a hurry.' I ran my eye over the message, scrawled in a rather illiterate hand on a sheet of common notepaper, and read, "'Sir... "'Will you please come at once to the mineral waterworks in Norton Street? "'One of our men has injured himself rather badly. "'Yours truly, J. Parker. "'P.S. He is bleeding a good deal, so please come quick.' "'The postscript gave a very necessary piece of information. "'An injury which bled would require certain dressings and surgical appliances "'over and above those contained in my pocket-case, "'and to obtain these I should have to take Batson's house on the way.' Slipping the note into my pocket, I wished my patient a hasty adieu, and strode off at a swinging pace in the direction of Jacob Street. The housemaid, Maggie, helped me to find the dressings and pack the bag, for she was a handy, intelligent girl, though no beauty, and meanwhile I questioned her as to the whereabouts of Norton Street and the mineral water factory. "'Oh, I know the place well enough, sir,' said she, though I didn't know the works were open. Norton Street is only a few minutes' walk from here.' "'It's quite close to Gayton Street. In fact, these works are just at the back of the Samway's house. "'You go up to the corner by the market and take the second on the right, and then—' "'Look here, Maggie,' I interrupted. "'You'd better come and show me the way, as you know the place. "'There's no time to waste on fumbling for the right turning.' "'Very well, sir,' she replied, and the bag being now packed with all necessary instruments and dressings, "'we set forth together. "'Is this a large factory?' i asked as she trotted by my side to the astonished admiration of jacob street and the neighbourhood in general no sir she replied it's quite a small place the last people went bankrupt and the works were empty and to let for a long time i thought they were still to let but i suppose somebody has taken them and started the business afresh it's round here she parted at me round the corner into a narrow by-street near the end of which she halted at the gate of a yard or mews above the entrance was a weather-beaten board bearing the inscription "'International Mineral Water Company,' and a half-defaced printed bill offering the premises to let, and at the side was a large bell-pull. A vigorous tug at the latter set the bell jangling within, and, as Maggie tripped away up the street, a small wicket in the gate opened, disclosing the dimly seen figure of a man standing in the inner darkness. "'Are you the doctor?' he inquired. I answered, "'Yes,' and being thereupon bidden to enter, stepped through the opening of the wicket, which the man immediately closed shutting out the last gleam of light from the street-lamp outside. "'It's rather dark,' said the unseen custodian, taking me by the arm. "'It is indeed,' I replied, groping with my feet over the rough cobbles. had not you better get a light of some kind?' "'I will in a minute,' was the reply. "'You see, all the other men have gone home. We close at six sharp. This is the way. I'll strike a match. The man is down in the bottling-room.' My conductor struck a match by the light of which he guided me through a doorway, along a passage or corridor, and down a flight of stone steps. At the bottom of the steps was a flagged passage, out of which opened what looked like a range of cellars. Along the passage I walked warily, followed by the stranger, and lighted very imperfectly by the matches that he struck, the glimmer of which threw a gigantic and ghostly shadow of myself on the stone floor, but failed utterly to pierce the darkness ahead. I was exactly opposite the yawning doorway of one of the cellars when the match went out, and the man behind me exclaimed, "'Wait a moment, doctor. Don't move until I strike another light.' I halted abruptly, and the next moment I received a violent thrust that sent me staggering through the open doorway into the cellar. Instantly the massive door slammed and a pair of heavy bolts were shot, in succession, on the outside. "'What the devil is the meaning of this?' I roared, battering and kicking furiously at the door of course there was no answer and i quickly stopped my demonstrations for it dawned on me in a moment that the factory was untenanted save by the ruffian who had admitted me that i had been decoyed here of a set purpose though what that purpose was i could not imagine but it was not long before i received a pretty broad hint as to the immediate intentions of my host a gentle thumping at the door of my cellar attracted my attention and caused me to lay my ear against the wood the sound that i heard was quite unmistakable The crevices of the door were being filled, apparently with pieces of rag, which my friend was ramming home, presumably with a chisel. In fact, the door was being corked to make the joints air-tight. The object of this proceeding was clear enough. I was shut up in an airtight cavity in which I was to be slowly suffocated. That was quite obvious. Why I was to be suffocated I could form no sort of guess, excepting that I had fallen into the hands of a homicidal lunatic. But I was not greatly alarmed. The air in a good-sized cellar will last a considerable time, and I could easily poke out anything that my friend might stuff into the keyhole. Then, when the man arrived in the morning, I could kick on the cellar door, and they would come and let me out. There was nothing to be particularly frightened about. Were there any men? The injured man was evidently a myth. Supposing the other man were a myth, too? I recalled Maggie's remark that she had thought the place was to let still perhaps it was that would be rather more serious at this point my agitations were broken in upon by sounds from the adjoining cellar the sound of someone moving about and dragging some heavy body and it struck me at once as strange that i should hear these sounds so distinctly seeing the massive door of my own cellar was sealed and the walls were of solid brick as i ascertained by rapping at them with my knuckles but i had no time to consider this circumstance for there suddenly rose a new sound whereat i must confess my heart fairly came into my mouth a loud penetrating hiss like the shriek of escaping steam it seemed to come from some part of the cellar in which i was immured from a spot nearly overhead and was immediately echoed by a similar sound in the adjoining cellar and then by a third even as the last sound broke forth the door of the adjoining cellar slammed the bolts were shot and then faintly mingled with a discordant hissing i could hear the dull thumping that told me that the cracks of that door too were being corked it was a frightful situation the hissing sound was obviously caused by the escape of gas under high pressure and that gas must be entering my cellar through some opening i felt for my matchbox and groping along the wall towards the point whence the loudest sound and indeed All the sounds proceeded, I struck a match. The glimmer of the wax vesta made everything clear. Close to the ceiling, about seven feet from the ground, was an opening in the wall about six inches square, and pouring through this in a continuous stream was a cloud of white particles that glistened like snowflakes. As I stood under the opening, some of them settled on my face, and the more than icy coldness of the contact told the whole, horrible tale in a moment." this white powder was snow. Carbonic acid snow. The hissing sound came from three of those great iron bottles, charged under pressure with liquefied carbonic acid, which are used by mineral water manufacturers for aerating the water. The miscreant, or lunatic, who had imprisoned me, had turned on the taps, and the liquid was escaping and turning into the snow with the cold produced by its own rapid evaporation and expansion of course the snow would quickly absorb heat and without again liquefying evaporate into the gaseous form in a very short time both cellars would be full of the poisonous gas and i well in a word i was shut up in a lethal chamber it has taken me some time to write this explanation which however flashed through my brain in the twinkling of an eye as the light of the match fell on that sinister cloud of snowflakes in a moment, I had my coat off and was stuffing it for dear life into the opening. It was but a poor protection against the gas, which would easily enough find its way through the interstices of the fabric, but it would stop the direct stream of snow and give me time to think. On what incalculable chances do the great issues of our lives depend? If I had been a short man, I must have been dead in half an hour, for the opening through which the cloud of snow was pouring was well over seven feet above the floor and would have been quite out of my reach. Even as it was, with my six feet of stature and corresponding length of arm, it was impossible to ram my coat into the opening with the necessary force, for I had to stand close to the wall with my arm upraised at a great mechanical disadvantage. Still, as I have said, imperfect as the obstruction was, it served to stop the inrushing cloud of snow. It would take some time for the heavy gas in the adjoining cellar to rise to the level of the opening, and, meanwhile, I could be devising other measures. I lit another match and looked about me the cellar was much smaller than i had thought and was absolutely empty the floor was of concrete the walls of rough brickwork and the ceiling of plaster all cracked and falling in there was plenty of ventilation there but that was of no interest to me carbonic acid is so heavy that it behaves almost like a liquid and it would have filled the cellar and suffocated me even if the top of my prison had been open to the sky the adjoining cellar was already filling rapidly and when the gas in it reached the level of the opening it would percolate through my coat and come pouring down into my cellar but that as i have said would take some time if the dividing wall was moderately sound this important qualification as soon as it occurred to me set me exploring the wall with the aid of another match and very unsatisfactory was the result It was a bad wall, built of inferior brick, and worse, mortar, and was marked by innumerable holes, where wall-hooks and other fastenings had been driven in between the bricks. My brief survey convinced me that, so far from being gas-tight, the wall was as pervious as a sponge, and that whatever I meant to do to preserve my life, I must set about without delay. But what was I to do? That was the urgent, the vital question escape was evidently impossible there were no means of stopping up the numberless holes and weak places in the wall the only vulnerable spot was the door if i could establish some communication with the outer air i could for a time at least disregard the poisonous gas with which i should presently be surrounded the first thing to be considered was the keyhole that must be unstopped at once fumbling in my bag for i had grown of a sudden niggardly with my matches I found a good-sized probe which I insinuated into the keyhole, and in a moment my hopes in that direction were extinguished, for the end of the probe impinged upon metal. The keyhole was not stopped with rag, but with a plate of metal fixed on the outside. With rapidly growing alarm, but with a tidiness born of habit, I put the probe back in the bag, and began feverishly to review the situation and consider my resources. And then I had an idea. Only a poor, forlorn hope but still, an idea. There is a certain ingenious type of pocket knife, devised principally in the interest of the cutlery trade, that innocent persons, usually of the female persuasion, are wont to bestow as presents on their masculine friends. Such a knife I chanced to possess. It had been given to me by an aunt, and sentimental considerations had induced me to give it an amount of room in my trousers pocket that I continually grudged. However, there it was, at this critical moment, with its corkscrew, gimlet, its bewildering array of blades, its hoof-pick, toothpick, tweezers, file, screw-driver and assorted unclassifiable tools, a ponderous lump of pocket-destroying uselessness, and yet, the appointed means of saving my life. The gimlet was the first tool that I called into requisition. Very gingerly, for these tools are commonly over-tempered and brittle, I bored in the thick plank a hole at about the level of my mouth and as I worked I turned over my further plans. When the gimlet was through the door, I selected a tool on whose use I had often speculated, a sharp-edged spike, like a diminutive and very stumpy bayonet, which I proceeded to use broach-wise to enlarge the hole. When this tool worked loose, I exchanged it for the screwdriver, with which I managed to broach the hole out to about half an inch in width, and this was as large as I could make it, and it was not large enough true one could breathe fairly comfortably through a half-inch hole but with the deadly gas circulating around a freer opening was very desirable then i bethought me that the magic knife contained a saw a wretched thick-bladed affair but still a saw which would actually cut wood if you gave it time this implement suggested a simple plan which i forthwith put into execution working as rapidly as i could without running the risk of breaking the tools my plan was to make a second hole some two inches diagonally below the first and from each hole to carry two saw cuts at right angles to one another the two pairs of cuts would intersect and take a square piece out of the door giving me a little window through which i could breathe in comfort it was a trifling task but yet with the miserable tools i had it took a considerable time to execute the more since the saw blade was wider than the holes excepting at its point however it was accomplished at last and i had the satisfaction of pushing out the little separated square of wood and feeling that i now had free access to the pure air outside my dungeon but it was none too soon as i rested from my labours it occurred to me to test the condition of the air inside lighting a wax match i held the little taper so that the flame ascended steadily and then lowered it slowly as it descended the flame changed colour somewhat and about eighteen inches from the floor it went out quite suddenly. There was then a layer of the pure gas about eighteen inches deep, covering the floor, and no doubt rising pretty rapidly. This was rather startling, and it warned me to have recourse without delay to my breathing hole. For though carbonic acid gas behaves somewhat as a liquid, it is not a liquid. Like other gases, it has the power of diffusing upwards, and the air of the cellar must be already getting unsafe accordingly after carefully wiping the surface of the door with my handkerchief i applied my mouth with some distaste to the opening and took in a deep draught of undoubtedly pure air the position in which i had to stand with my mouth to the hole was an irksome one and i foresaw that it would presently become very fatiguing moreover when the gas reached the level of my head it would be difficult to prevent some of it from finding its way into my mouth and nostrils and if it did i should most assuredly be poisoned This consideration suggested the necessity of making another hole at a lower level to let out the gas, and allow me to rest myself by a change of position. But this new task had to be carried out with my mouth glued to the breathing hole, and very awkward and tiring I found it, and very slow was the progress that I made. This second hole was smaller than the first, for time was precious, and I reflected that I could easily enlarge it by fresh saw-cuts, each two of which would take out a triangular piece of wood. But it was tedious work, and its completion left me with aching arms. Indeed, I was beginning to ache all over from the constrained position. Taking a deep breath and shutting my mouth, I stood up and stretched myself. Then I lit a match and looked at my watch. Half past eight. I had been over two hours in the cellar. And meanwhile the patients were waiting for me at the surgery, and no doubt murmuring at the delay. How soon would my absence lead to inquiries? Or were inquiries being made even now? looking at the match that i still held in my hand i noticed that its flame was pallid and bluish and as i lowered it slowly it went out when it was a little over two feet from the floor the gas then was still rising though not so rapidly as i had feared but from the altered colour of the flame it was evident that the air of the cellar generally contained enough diffused gas to be actively poisonous after a time the erect position began to grow insupportably fatiguing i felt that i must sit down for a few minutes rest even though prudence whispered that it was highly unsafe i struggled for a while but eventually conquered by fatigue sat down on the floor with my mouth applied closely to the lower breathing hole i persuaded myself that i would sit only just long enough to recover some of my strength but minute after minute sped by and still i felt an unaccountable reluctance to rise Suddenly I became conscious of a vague feeling of drowsiness, of a desire to lean back against the wall and doze. It was only slight, but its significance was so appalling that I scrambled to my feet in a panic, and, putting my mouth to the upper breathing hole, took several deep inspirations. But I soon realized that the upright position was impossible. The drowsy feeling continued, and there was growing with it a lassitude and weakness of the limbs that threatened to leave me only the choice between sitting or falling. A wave of furious anger swept over me and roused me a little, a burst of hatred of the cowardly wretch who had decoyed me, as I now suspected, to my death. Then this feeling passed and was succeeded by chilly fear, and I sank down once more into a sitting position, with my mouth pressed to the lower opening. The time ran on, unreckoned by me. Gradually, by imperceptible degrees, my mental state grew more and yet more sluggish, Anger and fear and ever-dwindling hope flitted by turns across the slowly fading field of my consciousness. Intervals of quiet indifference, almost of placid comfort, began to intervene, with increasing lassitude and a growing desire for rest. To lie down, that was what I wanted. To lay my head upon the stony floor and sink into sweet oblivion. At last I must have actually dozed, though, fortunately, without removing my mouth from the breathing-hole, for I had no sense of the passage of time, when I was suddenly aroused by the loud and continuous jangling of a bell. I listened with a sort of dull eagerness, and keeping awake with a conscious effort. The bell pealed wildly and without a pause for what seemed to me quite a long time. Then it ceased, and again my consciousness began to grow dim. After an interval, I know not how long, there came to me dimly, and only half perceived, the closing of a door, the patter of quick footsteps, and then the voice of a man calling me by name. I struggled to get on to my feet, but could not move, but I still held the clasp-knife and was able to rap with it feebly on the door. Again I heard the voice. It sounded nearer now, and yet infinitely far away, and again I rapped on the door and shouted through the breathing-hole, a thin muffled cry, such as one utters in a troubled dream, and then the drowsiness crept over me again, and I heard no more. The next thing of which I was conscious was a sounding thwack on the cheek with something wet that felt like a dead fish. I opened my eyes and looked vaguely into two faces that were close to mine and seemed to be lighted by a lamp or candle. The faces were somehow familiar, but yet I failed clearly to recognize them, and, after staring stupidly for a few moments, I began to doze again. Then the dead fish returned to the assault, and I again opened my eyes. Another vigorous flop caused me to open my mouth with an unparliamentary gasp. "'Ah, that's better,' said a familiar and yet unplaced voice. "'When a man is able to swear, he's fairly on the road to recovery. Flop!' The renewed attentions of the dead fish, which turned out later to be merely a wet towel, evoked further demonstrations on my part of progressing recovery, accompanied by a nervous titter in a female voice. Gradually, the clouds rolled away, and to my returning consciousness, the faces revealed themselves as those of Maggie, the housemaid, and Dr. Thorndyke. Even to my muddled wits, the presence of the latter was somewhat of a puzzle, and, in the intervals of anathematizing the deceased fish, which I had not yet identified, I found myself hazily speculating on the problem of how my revered teacher came to be in this place, and what place this was. "'Come now, Jardine.' "'said Dr. Thorndyke, emptying a jug of water on my face "'and receiving a volley of spluttered expletives in exchange. "'Pull yourself together. "'How did you get in that cellar?' "'Hang I vino,' said I, composing myself for another nap. "'But here the wet towel came once more into requisition, "'and that with such vigour that, in a fit of exasperation, "'I sat up and yawned. "'I think you'd better fetch a cab,' said Thorndyke, "'as Maggie wrung out the towel afresh.' but leave the gate open when you go out what's the cab for i asked sulkily can't i walk if you can it will be better said thorndyke let us see if you are able to stand he hoisted me on to my feet and he and maggie taking each an arm walked me slowly up and down the cobbled yard which i now began to recognize as appertaining to the mineral water works at first i staggered very drunkenly but by degrees the drowsy feeling wore off and I was able to walk with Thorndyke's assistance only. "'I think we might venture out now,' said he, at length, piloting me towards the gate, and when I had stumbled rather awkwardly through the wicket, we set forth homeward. On my arrival home, Thorndyke ordered a supply of strong coffee and a light meal, after which, it being obvious that I was good for nothing in a professional sense, he suggested that I should go to bed. "'Don't worry about the practice,' said he. "'I'll send for my friend Jervis,' and between us we will see that everything is looked after. If Maggie will give me a sheet of paper and an envelope, I'll write a note to him, and then she can take a hansom to my chambers and give the note either to Dr. Jervis or my man Polton. Meanwhile, I will stay here and see that you don't go to sleep prematurely. He wrote the note, and Maggie, having made such improvements in her outward garb as befitted the status of a rider in hansoms, took charge of it and departed with much satisfaction and dignity. Thorndike made a few inquiries of me as to the circumstances that had led to my incarceration in the cellar, but finding that I knew no more than Maggie, whom he had already questioned, he changed the subject. Nor would he allow me again to refer to it. No, Jardine, he said, better think no more of it for the present. Have a good night's rest, and then, if you're all right in the morning, we will go into the matter and see if we can put the puzzle together. End of chapter 5